we can begin our panel. I was asking what this panel is about, and they said, just look behind you. Defending Gender Rights and Equality. I'm going to be introducing our five panelists. They have very exhaustive and impressive biographies, so I'm, I was told only one sentence each. So for those of you who want to know more about our esteemed panelists can look at, I'm assuming there are booklets out? They're online. They're online. Okay. So we'll start with Jackie Henson. Jackie Henson is Amnesty International's um, Canada's gender rights campaigner who is based in Ottawa. And then beside Jackie, okay, I practice Patience's last name, so she's going to see if I can do this. Patience Umaraweneza. Yep. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> Patience is the project coordinator for the Sexual Assault Services of Saskatchewan. And then Jacqueline Anaquad is a founder, the founder of Sisters in Spirit South Saskatchewan, which is a grassroots initiative that raises awareness about violence against Indigenous women through educational presentations. And she works with families of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And beside her is Jet Brewer. Jet Brewer has been an activist for 30 years. He has held positions with the uh, a vice president and co-chair of Trans Sask Support Services. He has been on many boards and committees such as, such as organizations such as Queen City Pride and Camp Firefly. Welcome. Jet. And finally, we have Amber Fletcher. Um, Dr. Amber Fletcher is Associate Professor of Sociology and Social Studies at the University of Regina. Her research examines the social and gender dimensions of climate hazards in rural and indigenous communities. So my first question to all the panelists is, from where you're sitting in your particular area of work, what do you see as the single greatest threat to progress uh, towards achieving gender equality. So I'm going to start on my left. <laughs> okay. The sink. No biggie, the single greatest threat. Um, I think that if I had to say, yeah, well, single threat, well, you know what, we're just going to claim the space and say maybe more than one threat, so <laughs> there we go. Um, so I'd say the top, some of the top threats, I think, in terms of moving forward on gender equality, I'd say one is, is apathy um, and a lack of buy-in to, to really understand and embrace the concepts and have everyone contributing to working towards gender equality and I think that, that that allows for when we have which is my second point, populism we have um, governments that come into power that, that aren't wanting to promote rights and we have that apathy it actually creates an environment where it's very easy for them to be eroded so when I say kind of populism and why I find this, this concerning is what we are seeing worldwide is, is that women's rights are being clawed back in so many parts of the world right now we're seeing um, same-sex sexual relations recriminalized or recriminalized in some countries. We're seeing a rollback on sexual and reproductive rights. You know, we're seeing the space for civil society to advocate shrinking, um, dissent being criminalized. And I think behind that is having um, a lack of policies, um, a lack of constitutional protections for gender equality that make it so that at the whim of a government it's very easy easy to make an executive order or make a proclamation and to very easily wipe away rights. Um, and so we need to make it a lot harder. We need to have things that are centralized at policy level, constitutional levels in some countries to make sure that when a government comes into power, they can't just immediately wipe away our rights. It's a lot harder for that to happen. Well, 
some of my answers was in there. <laughs> so I think, like you said, apathy is probably one of the big things. Um, you know, for I speak for um, you know with migrant women and women in refugee situation, it's the intersectionality of oppression that women faces, where no one recognizes how much that enc- um, encroaches women's lives, and the accumulation of that over the lifetime. And as we're seeing. Um, you know, wars continue to happen. And all over the world, like you said, um, rights for women are being clawed back. And for the women that are already marginalized, those rights are slow, are, it's even more so taken away. And so um, when someone, like let's say you live in Canada and you can say you live in a country where we go by state of law, and your rights in your own country are marginalized when you're someone who doesn't even have a country that can stand for you. That's even hard more so. And so we find that for women, uh, migrant women and refugee women, um, the experiences are a lot different than for men. And often it's gendered. Often there is violence that adds to that, a layer to that. And there's not always a recognition on how to address that in a way that's uh, specific to those women. There's not representation that speaks specifically for those women. Um, And then it passes down into generations. Um, So I think for us, like, it's that intersectionality and recognizing that women's experiences have multiple layers of repression um, and children and you know and then that passes on with children and um, and then it goes over a lifetime so and then of course you know I think like and globalization I think has added to that um, it's almost added to the fact that you know, when we talk about sex trafficking, especially um, when you can just move women around um, and add to that exploitation of women on a global scale, and we still haven't had a way of addressing to that um, on a national scale, I think that makes it really scary. I was reading an article that said, you know, we are 170 years away from gender equality, and it used to be 120, and then it used to be 80 years. So I feel like we're going even further and further ahead. Uh, for It's taking even longer and longer for us to reach gender equality, and I wonder if a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, we can all say that we care about gender equality, but to get to that space of gender equality, some people have to give up the privileges that place them, you know, that that, um, benefits them. And so, um, you know, when we talk about, like, we have to make changes that benefit, um, you know, gender equality for the people in privilege who benefit from that gender inequality, it's hard for them to actually take a stand and say, yes, we will agree to these changes. And we see that um, when we talk about even, let's say, diversity and people saying we're against diversity because it, you know, it, it, it doesn't make a, a, what do you call it, like a level playing field at the workplaces. And you forget the fact that some people don't even have that level playing field to begin with, right? Or it takes away, like, you already assume that you have these natural abilities Well, for a woman she would have to fight for those things. And, you know, um, and so... I think it comes in so many layers, and I think it is that, that layers of oppression and the intersectionality of it um, that keeps coming back and it's not going away. So, thank you. Oh, you, oh, Jet, can you pass your microphone to Hello, testing. Nigampeta, <laughs> um, first of all, I've always been taught to introduce myself. Dante uh, Kakiao. Hello, everyone. Jacqueline Anaquad Nitsiasun. My name is Jacqueline Anaquad. Nia Nehio Eguanakwe. I'm a Cree and Soto woman. Eochean Treaty for Territory. Where we sit right now, I'd like to acknowledge these lands of uh, Treaty for Territory, which are the original lands of the Cree and Soto peoples, um, and also Metis homelands. Um, I have one daughter. Uh, 
Nia Okimao. I am a grandmother. I have two sweet uh, grandchildren at home. Kizik Egwa Kimawan Isigasu. Kizik and Kimwan, that is their names. Kizik means clear sky in Cree, and Kimawan means rain, or it is raining in uh, Cree. So uh, we wanted to repatriate our names and uh, give them Cree names, um, which was really important to us. Um, And so, um, again, I'd like to first say, Nenanaskaman, Mama Otawi Mao Nochka Kisigak. I'd like to give thanks to Creator for this day. Um, and uh, again, Kenanasko Mitnawao for all of you that are sitting here taking part in all of this. So, gender equality um, for Indigenous women, and speaking for myself as a Cree woman, um, is really complex. It's really, really complex, and within our own communities, it 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 has caused a lot of, um, I guess you would say, rift arguments. Because when you are, um, you know, talking and speaking to gender, so much of who we are as Indigenous people is rooted within being a male or female, or how you identify as a male or female because in Cree society we are born into roles and those roles came before pre, pre-contact you know as an indigenous uh, woman or as an indigenous man um, pre-contact you were born into roles and so I know with time it has changed so today you know I am not um, you know, living off the lands, you know, like my ancestors did. Today, I'm in a res- uh, career of research and academia. And, you know, where I see the biggest, what was it, the biggest challenges in that area? In that area is that, you know, when you're in a scholarly career, it's all based on publications and you know presentations and and everything that you know books you've written and and a lot of times you know you won't see a lot of indigenous authors especially female authors you know that world is dominated by white males you know and and we're all sitting here and we know the reason why you know because of western patriarchal values so we don't always have the time to sit like I have so much research that I've done where I can sit down and write paper after paper after paper but you know what I don't have that time because I'd rather spend that time with my grandchildren with my with my nosims you know because I value that more so than I do submitting an article I value um, going into my community and beginning initiatives and and being in spaces like this. Um, So why can't I put that on my CV as a professional achievement, you know? But those things aren't looked at as something of value, you know? Founding Sisters in Spirit, over the past nine years, um, this is a volunteer group that um, myself and Brenda Dubois founded together and it addresses the violence against indigenous women and girls, two-spirited and trans people. And uh, the work we do is completely volunteer and uh, we're always met with with um, so much, I guess, 
you wouldn't believe, but backlash from community, and it's difficult um, to do this work, and it's year-round. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of veering off topic here, but the th- but the thing is, like, I put my heart and soul into things like that rather than writing a paper. And I'm not saying that white males can't, you know, start a start their own initiatives, um, but you know the truth is is that that's what you'll see is you'll see a lot of white males authored and published, and all of a sudden they'll say something, you know, that we've known for for years and years and years and years, and and it's like oh my god, this new discovery made by him, and 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 we're all like we've been saying that for years, like. Just because a white male says it, now all of a sudden it means something. So, yeah, those are the kind of things that I deal with on the daily, okay? As an indigenous woman, as a Nehio woman, I deal with um, gender inequalities on the daily. Um, and I hope to see that ending. And, and I never heard the 170 years before or a, a, a time on it before. Um, but I know I just live for today. And I do my best to, um, you know, work towards equality in every way for everyone. Um, because, you know, right now I look at Tamar Keepness and I think of this little girl. And it's just, it, it stems, it stems from everything that's going on, you know, this gender rights and gender equality, it all comes together, you know, and you got to remember at the end of the day that we have a f- little five-year-old girl that's still missing here in our city and that she should never be forgotten. So I um, took this from the table that's out there and I, and I wanted to hold it while I sat up here. I could say hi, hey. Um, my name is Jet Brewer, and um, I'm really humbled and honored to be here today and to be asked to be on this panel uh, with these amazing, amazing women here. Um, and the, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's put in the hard work to make this possible, to give all of these people voices, to give all these causes voices. Um, I was asked to be on the panel to provide some testosterone. <laughs> um, but uh, my testosterone is a little different. Uh, mine's injected. <laughs> um, I wasn't born with it, uh, or the amount that I have. Um, it would be great to uh, to have uh, a cisgendered male on the panel as well to speak from their perspective, and I would want to acknowledge that. I also want to acknowledge that I think that it's fair that uh, it's mostly women on this panel because of the inequality that's existed in the past and still exists um, for their voices. Um, Being a transgendered man, uh, it's hard for me to answer a lot of the questions um, from one perspective or another because my unique position is that I straddle both. So um, I am considered a traitor by some feminists. Um, I am considered uh, an infiltrator by some men. (laughs) Um, Double agent, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But um, the truth is is that um, I feel it's a huge gift um, to myself. Um, I feel lucky, no matter how hard the situation is to be in, because it does give me those different perspectives. Um, It does keep me extremely humble. Um, I could have an ego on either side, and I'm glad that I, I don't. <laughs> um, but it's challenging to try and, and bridge that gap, and if transgender people can 
provide that role in society that could be a gift to society as a whole um, if we can share our experiences of seeing things from both sides. Um, I think the greatest things that are affecting um, our struggle for equality in the world are number one, war. Um, war is where you see um, the greatest disparity as far as uh, gender equality. Um, you see that um, the worst case scenario is in Africa where hundreds of girls have gone missing from the schools. Um, we live in a country where we are not fighting a war in the same way we're not fighting for our lives every day. So we have the, f the freedom and the privilege to sit here and talk about these things, to think about them on a daily basis, to look at our own individual struggles and, and fight back. Um, I think that uh, that is something that makes us extraordinarily lucky, every one of us here. Um, the other thing that I think is uh, a huge problem um, in the whole overall picture is what we don't know about gen gender or what we think we know about gender. And science is catching up, education is catching up, and we're learning so much constantly, and it's, it's a very fast process. It's hard to keep up with. Um, but I think that... Um, you know, the challenges that have been spoken about today, you know, as far as culture and tradition and, um, you know, passing on uh, gender roles and stereotypes and things like that. Um, it's, it's a huge thing that's going to take many generations. And so I've heard a presenter today talk about patience. Uh, I, I've heard, you know, um, other people talk about how we need to push harder. There's a role for everyone, um, and there's there's fights at every level and in every dynamic that each one of us can play a part in in our lives. Um, in the transgender community, one of the largest problems that we face uh, as far as getting our stories out and getting our rights um, solidified and our place in society um, is that most of us are so damaged. Um, we have so much anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, all kinds of things that we have experienced. Anger is a huge issue in our community. When you come from a marginalized um, position where you've been oppressed, where you've been abused, where you aren't able to form your own true identity, it's hard to have the strength and the health and the things that are needed to stand up for yourself, to stand up for the others in your community. Um, and especially to fight back against such extreme odds. Um, I want to acknowledge, um, when I was a kid, my mom said that the strongest women on the planet are indigenous women because of the adversity that they have to fight back against. And um, so I just want to honor those women here today. Um, sorry. Um, in the transgender community as well, um, most of us just want to live a normal, everyday life. And it's the same with everybody that's facing oppression. You just want to have the opportunity to be healthy, to be happy. And um, so people, if they're able to physically transition and pass as their true gender, um, they will often disappear into society. And so you may have met lots of trans people in your life, but not know it. Mm -hmm. um, and what we need to do is we need to create um, support systems for those people so that they can be strong enough to be out um, and to be part of the educational movement and the, and the advocacy movement. So, um, yes, but if right now I better cut myself off. <laughs> Thank you.
don't know where else to put hey, it. Um, good afternoon, everybody, and, and it's an honor for me to be on this panel and to be speaking with this wonderful group of people as well. And thank you all for being here. Um, so the, the, the question was about what we see as the single greatest threat to gender equality. And I think there's, there's so many things that we could talk about. We could talk about very widespread, very wide-reaching trends of violence, of economic inequality. There's, there are many different things. But I think for me, it, I, wanted to, I want to go back to the root of it. And for me, I, I'm becoming increasingly concerned with this discourse that I keep hearing, with, with this, this conversation that exists and is, is becoming, I think, increasingly powerful, particularly as we see the rise of more right-wing voices, um, sort of men's rights advocates, the, the, the rise of these kinds of voices on the right that are seeking to silence social justice, gender equality-seeking voices. And, and the discourse that's increasingly being used and that I see being used is one of what we call in... in I'm a gender sociologist, so uh, biological essentialism or biological determinism is what we call it. And it's a, it's a discourse that suggests... There are, first of all, that our gender system is, is two. Is, there are two. There are men and there are women. And men are this and women are this. And that is all. And it's a, it's a system, it's a discourse that says this is biological, this is natural, this is the way it's always been and the way that it always will be. But this is not the way that it's always been. And this is not the way that it always will be. And there have been so many different gender systems. We have systems in pre-colonial Aboriginal societies, some not all, but some where there are up to five, six different genders. And yet we naturalize this in our, in our contemporary society, in our dominant society. We say that we put people in, in boxes and in, in restrictive categories that limit their possibilities and that limit the things that they can and cannot do and that really predispose them toward certain opportunities, certain rights. And I think that's, it's not only incredibly restrictive for, for example, women who have been told for a very long time, you are this, you must be this, this, these are the options available to you, but also for men, for men who are told, do not be emotional, do not be caring, do not be an active caregiver for your child or for your children. And, and we, I think we need to recognize the, especially as we hear this growing discourse from people like Jordan Peterson, who now has a book on the shelves <laughs> that makes these kinds of arguments. Um, I think we have to be really, really critical of this biological thing when we hear it and to be able to call it out and to, to, to talk about how limiting it is and, and how it reinforces heteronormativity, how it reinforces the idea that people who are transgender or who people, people who are non-binary or who go against this system in some way are somehow abnormal, are somehow that they don't fit. And, and I believe the root of the problem is not recognizing the wide variety of gender systems that have existed and that do exist across time and space. And if we can come to recognize that, I think we can expand the, the possibilities and the opportunities for everyone. So that's what I think is, is at the root of the problem. Thank you. So that was really impressive. So I'm going to start asking each person very specific questions about their personal experiences so we can hear more from them. Um, I'll start with you, Patience. You, I want to build on what... Um, Amber was saying, can I call you Amber? <laughs> 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 Say, 
Dr. Fletcher. (laughs) Um, She mentioned how we're living at times when we have a a rise of the right wing, and they're sort of, and it's almost like we have a dichotomy of the the social warrior, justice, you know, justice warriors, and the right wing, and they're causing conversations to come out in the open in ways we haven't heard this loudly before, particularly when it comes to migrants and immigration and how it's a they're being seen as a threat. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, um, I guess for me, I don't see it as a rise, but more of a cycle. Like this has come up. This is, it's it's more of when will it happen again? You know, you you kind of listen when it starts with, you know, wh- which countries we're starting. Then you think, oh, it's getting hotter. <laughs> we're going to be next um, and so I think it's not so much I think it's more of a cycle and you know when you think about colonialism and how f- long it's existed and how far it's permeated you know like for the continent of Africa there's nowhere that it hasn't touched right and it's uh, and we continue to live the effects of it um, and so for me I think you know we often in Canada we say things like well you know at least we're not like the states or all these things but we forget that we're not really post-colonial you know we're still living in it it just looks different we've modified the look of it the face of it and um, maybe sometimes the non-violence of it in certain spaces and how violent it is in other spaces and then of course we accept that that works Um, and so when I saw the rise of it again I guess it felt like um, these were things that were there and just weren't said necessarily. They weren't always explicit. And now someone or circumstances have opened doors for it to come out. Um, and for that to come out and for us to accept it, we're accepting other things to come out. Because for those things that we think, those rights we think we have already obtained, um, they're so easily given up. And I think, you know, what happened in the U.S. during 9-11 is an example of how so many things, people were willing to give up certain rights for their idea of protection and I think about and that ties into like xenophobia and all these other notions that we think that all these people are going to come back and attack us and it's going to take away from that and when I look at it with gender it often falls into this notion like you're taking away from me you know if I give you what you need you're taking away from me and so it's going to so I have to fight a way to protect that so um, for you know, for migrants, you know, when you talk about refugees and, and migrant people, I think we're always in that precarious place where I think even though for a lot of our countries we've experienced independence, um, I think there's still a lot of strings attached and there's still a lot of um, sort of puppetry happening in the back that continues to affect our politics, our policies. And so even though cultures in itself may honor the notion, like sort of like how indigenous cultures honors, you know, men and women and all these things, um, that greater, you know, sort of... um, I don't know how to say it's not like a force, but that greater culture of it continues to permeate within uh, our systems and our governments and then our policies and what is funded and what isn't funded and who has power and who doesn't have power. So, yeah. Jackie, I wanted to ask you a question about your Amnesty International Canada's gender rights campaigner. We've seen the rise of the Me Too movement. And so, I, I, you know, I hear a lot of women saying, this is the beginning of great change and and isn't it amazing it's happening and then a lot of other people say but we're still doing so much better than those women over there and there's that dichotomy and I wanted you to comment about that (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think that um, with Me Too, it also has it. It could be part of a cycle where there tend to be moments where people galvanize, and I think there's always the hope that it's just going to be, you know, lead to something better and not just be part of this cycle where things come around and awareness is raised and then it kind of goes silent. Um, I'm hoping that it will be a chance for people not just to say, you know, that's about them, that's not about us. I think the challenge is to say, if we really mean me too, like we all need to say and accept our personal responsibility and say what is my role what role have I played in this um, and I think we also have to understand and acknowledge when people can't and or it's not safe to say me too and understand the voices that we're not hearing um, as part of that but I really think that that concept of personal responsibility is going to be important if me too is really going to mean anything I mean for me as a white cis middle class you know urban woman I have to understand you know what role do I play you know even as a gender rights campaigner you know and this is my world it, it doesn't mean that there aren't ways that I can grow I'm constantly having to learn about even as a, a you know a white cis woman how do I step back how do I how do I check my own privilege um, in my own life I'm I'm parenting a kid who identifies as boy and like oh my god I'm raising a young white male okay so you know what is what does this look like um, and you know last year he came home from kindergarten and he talked started talking about boy colors and girl colors and you can only imagine how that went down in my household and uh, and so it's sometimes about how do we own this and as parents as as activists as as employees as you know all of these different layers that form who we are how do we have that personal responsibility and say how do we contribute in every aspect of our lives and, and understand that this is always going to be growing and evolving and changing and that's absolutely okay and it will continue to grow and evolve and change but I think that for me um, I think is going to be a test of me too is how do we not say that's them but me too means all of us and we have to own it we have to be responsible and we have to look at what we are personally going to change and we're going to have to have those awkward uncomfortable discussions you know we're going to have to call things out at family dinners with those awkward relatives where you know like those things that we're you know and sometimes it's hard and we don't have the emotional you know bandwidth to, to do it all but it's really about how do we all and by all I mean everybody um, take that on and have that role and, and I'm finding it very challenging in the era of Jordan Peterson for an example to to have these discussions um, with with even some of the people in my life who even on my off hours when I'm not doing amnesty things are throwing things out and quoting him and I'm going oh my god you know like it is exhausting and this is for me with the incredible privilege that I have it is still really exhausting to just constantly be chipping away at this and so I think one of the challenges is going to be how do we get other people to really accept that personal responsibility so that it's not just you know women primarily who um, and non-binary folks and trans folk who are bearing the emotional load of doing this work how do we get this to be shared personal responsibility You were talking about the importance of language and culture and empowerment of women and how that is 
huge for Indigenous women. Can you, and you're a mom and you're a grandmother and you were talking about you know, reclaiming Cree names for your daughter and grandchildren. Can you t- talk about more? Can you talk to me about that? Uh, of course. <laughs> um, as a Cree family, Nehio family, um, there's a lot of values and traditional protocol um, and customs, ceremonies. There's a lot of belief, our worldview, ways of doing things that conflict with um, everyday life here in an urban setting. And it's really difficult to try to raise woke children, you know, um, because they're constantly being influenced. Like one of the things is, like one small thing is um, when my daughter was carrying um, my nosum, you know, uh, we don't find out the gender, you know, because um, it's not like a superstition thing. It's one of our values as Indigenous people is we don't matter. It doesn't matter to us what the gender of the baby is. So when you go to an ultrasound and they're saying, oh, do you want to find out what the sex of your baby is? And the funny thing is, my daughter, she really, really wanted to. But then she was like, I was explaining to her. I was like, well, no, we don't find out the gender because it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. All that matters is that that baby is healthy and that that baby is going to be born in a good way. It shouldn't matter if it's a male or a female. I said, those things don't matter in, like, you know, while you're pregnant, you know, in life right now. All that matters, all that we know is that that baby is a baby. Nothing more, nothing else. And uh, so she decided that she didn't want to find out. And what the funny thing is, with both of her pregnancies, even if she wanted to, she wouldn't be able to because um, they could never see the, I guess, the genitals, <laughs> um, because the baby was always in a in a different position. So they're like, oh, we can't tell you anyways. So um, the baby's hiding, and she ended up having two little girls, and even their names are fluid. You know, um, they're not gender based. Kizik and Kimwan, and that again was really important to us, is that we wanted them to have names that were really, um, you know, not like a girl name or a boy name, you know, it wasn't based on that, so just starting right there, you know, within our own family, um, to bring back those traditional ways of being, um, is this is a start to gender equality and you know having those talks within um, our household is a start is a beginning and we're going to raise little babies um, that are going to see themselves that way in the world you know and and to this day like and it's so funny because both of them they they look so much like little boys when they were babies. So everybody always used to be like, "What a cute little boy!" And we never corrected anyone. We're like, "Yeah, yeah, he's so adorable." <laughs> and because it didn't matter to us, because you know the babies are healthy, and and when they grow up, you know they're gonna be, you know whoever they want to be, and we're always gonna support them, and we're always going to love them, you know. And and again, it goes back to our gender roles that we have as Cree people, you know, and pre-contact it was men went out to hunt, women stayed home to gather, 
you know but things have changed you know because of society colonialism everything around us and and gender roles have changed and so now today we have a lot of um i guess like even the ribbon skirt there is so much controversy over that you know and um i know some some kateyak old people that really enforce that that want women to wear skirts into ceremony and i know others that don't as long as you're there at the ceremony it doesn't matter whether or not you're wearing a skirt and and for others the skirt is a symbol of of taking back who they are because a lot of our of our people were you know taken away from their families during the 60s 70s 80s 2000 to this day scoop you know it's still happening today and a lot of our young indigenous people are finding out who they are in university and to me okay yes that's a good thing but to me i'm just like i wish you would find out who you you know Leanne Simpson, you know, Leanne Simpson is my favorite author. Oh, she's a feminist and I that's who I identify with and blah blah blah. And I wish they would find themselves in the land or, you know, in our ceremonies, not in, you know, a theory or a methodology, you know. I wish they would find themselves organically. And um and and I hope that comes for our people. But like I said, going back to the ribbon skirt, for some for some women that's a huge thing when they when they first get a ribbon skirt for them because it it's almost like it connects them to their identity and i don't want to take that away from someone from a young girl who may have grown up in a white foster foster home or was adopted by white parents and had no no connection to who she was growing up and is finally getting that connection and one of those connections is a beautiful ribbon skirt and that makes her feel more like an indigenous woman and more of of who she is then yes then yes i want to celebrate her in her beautiful skirt and i want her to wear that skirt in ceremony and feel special about it you know but i'm also not going to shame um you know people who choose not to just like we don't shame our two spirit and trans people um when we have our ceremonies because again that's another thing which side do you sit on right cuz women sit on one side men sit on another well if you are you know um if you don't subscribe to being a man or a woman well then where do you sit you know again for myself i'm always telling the the elders that i work with you know these are these are these are these are things that need to be brought up and talked about because a lot of times our old people they don't know they don't know these things that are going on and how sensitive these subjects are so we need to talk to them it's not about them shaming people sometimes they just don't know they don't know about these issues so we need to let them know and we need to educate them as well so i think patience somebody said patience Yes, we need to have patience and we need to be able to um uh have patience with everybody as we all grow, as we all move forward um as one as you know as as people. Speaking of woke children, Jet. <laughs> so a lot of kids are growing up with a much more um nuanced understanding of gender and the trans community. So 
it's becoming much more, you know, there's a lot more awareness in the education system. But, you know, working for CBC Radio, we get parents who write into us saying, I can't believe my kid came home today and, and the teacher said I was non-binary and I don't know how to explain that to my kid and I'm really upset and you get the parents who are really angry. How do we bridge that? It seems to be a generational divide between the parents and their kids in terms of understanding because the cultural sands seem to be shifting faster than some parents can can deal with. Thanks for giving me an easy question. (laughs) (laughs) Where's Dustin? (laughs) I need Dustin here. Um, That's a big one. (laughs) Um, From my personal experience, um, I can start from there. Going into uh, TransAsk, I... When I found out I was transgender, I had never met anybody that was transgender previous. I didn't know anything about it. Um, you know, when I finally did figure it out, I had to go do a bunch of research, and um, I ended up, you know, finding one movie about a trans man, and that was Boys Don't Cry, where the trans man was murdered. So um, there wasn't a lot for me out there. Um, the internet has opened the doors, um, so kids are finding information and they're finding options at such younger ages. Um, and um, it's an overwhelming amount of information that is out there, and some of it's accurate, some of it's not. And so um, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, for those of us that transitioned like in later in life, um, like I didn't realize I was transgender until I was 38. So um, I feel jealous that they have this opportunity to get to know who they are earlier and not go through the traumas that I went through and the issues that I've had. But at the same time, they are now going through issues that I have no clue about. Um, They're going through struggles and and tests and um, uh, things that at an age where they don't have the maturity or the life experience or um, different things like that to to deal with what's going on in their lives. So um, there's pros and cons to both. Um, Ideally, we get to a point where, you know, from from birth, the the child is respected and and allowed the freedom to evolve into who they they authentically are without restrictions or stereotypes or or, um, all of the things that are put on kids. so they don't have to go through the pain and the trials. When you see um, how quickly young kids um, accept diversity, um, accept differences in gender and sexuality, like it's no big deal at all. Like they just roll with it. And um, it's those of us that have been raised with certain preconceptions, certain types of knowledge, certain types of traditions, that it takes a lot more work to um, come to a place where we um, accept that there is other realities um, and then learn about them and accept that knowledge and then also um, come to a point of empathy and support. Um, there's, there's so many stages in this process. It's not just whether you accept this or don't accept this. Um, how do you make that easier for people? Um, when I joined TransSask, I my learning curve was so huge because I met people that were dealing with gender realities, sexuality realities that I had never conceived. I, my imagination couldn't uh, create those scenarios that those people were living in. 
So I had to check my own biases, my own prejudices, my own preconceived notions, things that I thought I knew, mm -hmm. things that I thought were facts. <laughs> and I had to start opening my mind up to possibilities of differences and saying, if I want somebody to respect me and give me space in society and give me rights and allow me freedoms, I have to take the judgment and the boxes and the labels and the, you know, the laws and things off of other people and give them the space to be who they are, even if I don't understand them. Because that's exactly what I'm asking for. <laughs> You've never been in my shoes, and I'm asking you to you know, accept me. <laughs> um, so I've never been in their shoes. I have to accept them. It gets really hard when things are tied up in intergenerational things like family, family dynamics, religion. Um, we could talk all day about all the different things that impact. But if we can start with one place, and that's just stepping back from what we think we know. Mm -hmm. Having some empathy that somebody is going through a different experience than we are, and that is as valid as what we've been through. Um, I would love to be able to have everybody you know, receive the same education and come to the same conclusions, uh, but we're all individuals. So I think it just comes down to openness and everybody here in this room is like preaching to the choir because everybody's here because they want to learn, they, they want to you know, um, be there for other people and, and they want to make society better. Um, it would be great if government recognized uh, the challenges that are going on in our youth and the education system and stuff, and if we could get that information and supports into a younger and younger audience. Um, we have made progress here in Saskatchewan. I sat on a provincial education roundtable, and there was uh, on gender and sexuality and sex issues, and so there is progress being made. Um, it, it, it's slow, but it's there. We have individual advocates that are going out and, and working on this issue. Um, but it's huge, and, and I'd love to see the federal government come up with a strategy, you know, at, at the base, starting at the youngest ages. Um, and I don't know how to get through to people that have got their walls up. That would be a magic trick that any of us would love to, <laughs> to uh, permeate those barriers that people put up. And a lot of it comes from fear. And I know people hide behind fear, but it's human nature to be afraid of things that we don't understand or things that go contradictory to what we already have internalized as reality. So um, patience. <laughs> and you know, each one of us, the, the key is one-on-one um, -on -one experiences. Once you know somebody that you've loved or cared about or somebody in your immediate circle, um, it changes you and you can't unchange that. And that's where we make a lot of progress in this world is those one-on-one -on -one relationships, those one-on-one -on -one experiences. So even if you aren't a great advocate or a great speaker or whatever um, you think you have to be to make a change in the world, just those one-on-one -on -one gentle relationships change people. Thank you. Amber, I wanted to ask you, um, for people who don't know who Jordan Peterson is, if you could just briefly talk about him and his ideas and and how you feel we can challenge him and his ideas. This is a small question. Oh, another easy question, yeah. Um, all right, well, at, at the risk of giving him, I think, more airtime than he deserves, um, which I think is very little. 
Uh, <laughs> um, Jordan Peterson is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He has recently written a book entitled 12 Rules for Life. I believe it's called. Haven't read it. Um, and uh, Jordan Peterson basically promotes what I have called the biological essentialist or biological determinist approach to gender, wherein he believes that uh, there are particular biological characteristics of women and there are particular biological characteristics of men and that these are that these help to explain gender inequality and ultimately to justify gender inequality. So the idea is that women are this, men are this, uh, there are only two, women and men, and you best be one of the two, according to him. And, uh, and there's a variety of, of different discourses that he pulls on to justify this, but ultimately it's used to, I think, I, the reason I'm so concerned about this discourse is for the exclusion that it encourages of people that are non-binary and who don't fit that system in some way. But I'm also I'm very concerned about the way it, it limits everyone into those categories, into those expected behaviors and expected roles. But even more so, I'm concerned about how it shuts down progress. I'm concerned about how saying, well, something's natural, it's biological, that's how it is, best not try to change it. And, and I think there's, from a, from a research perspective, there's actually a lot of really well done research that questions this biological determinist or essentialist approach that says, well, actually, no, there's a lot of research that shows if you, for example, in studies that have been done that aim to show that there are biological differences in, for example, spatial skills. So I'm sure you've probably all heard about some of these studies, right, that say, well, men, boys, males are naturally better at spatial activities. Of course, in, those are often correlated with engineering and the things that men are told they should naturally be inclined to do or naturally interested in. And actually, what the research shows is that with a lot of these studies, and, and these studies are presented as this ironclad thing, here you go, it's all biological, we can't change gender inequality because this study. Well, actually, there's a lot of really good research that shows if you prime children before they go into these kinds of studies, and if you say, for example, here's a spatial skill, and you tell a little girl that that spatial skill is going to be inclined to make her better at something feminine, interior design, let's say, that she will actually do much better on the task than if you tell her it's associated with something masculine like engineering. So children are actually primed to have these differences that actually don't naturally exist. Um, there's also some, some very interesting studies on how, I think it's really important to remember that the social, the expectations associated with gender, the ideologies that we have about gender and, and what men and women should be, um, actually comes to shape our bodies. I always, when I'm, when I'm talking to my students about gender, I always say, you know, if, if children are encouraged to pick up the heavy thing, they will become physically stronger. If they're discouraged from picking up the heavy thing, they will not become physically strong. And, and you know, there, there's research that shows, for example, at the age of five, the vocal apparatus between girls and boys has not yet differentiated in any way, but girls are already speaking at a higher pitch. So the social, the things we tell people they should be, come back to shape the biological in ways where we often think it's the other way around. We often think it's just the biological that says, you do this role, you do this. But in fact, the social matters as well. And so 
I, I think I got a little off Jordan Peterson there, but um, I think it's important to not, <laughs> not talk too much about Jordan Peterson. Thank you. Jackie. So when the whole discourse of um, white privilege suddenly started becoming very dominant in the media, a lot of white feminists felt under attack and felt that they were being told things that they had never heard before in terms of not understanding women of color. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, but first I wanted to pick up on something Amber said um, from a human rights perspective. So when we have been faced with some of these arguments um, around Jordan Peterson, um, certainly this came out in, in the, the work on Bill C-16 on gender identity, there was this sense and, and there, was a, there was this fear that if we expanded rights for some groups of people that it would be infringing or limiting rights of others. And so we've increasingly found that we're spending more of our time trying to say that this isn't about scarcity. This, there's not a scarcity here. This isn't about we, you get rights and so mine are taken away. It, this is not what this is all about. And what's interesting is we've increasingly had to be much more overt, um, including with decision makers, about how we've, we've really had to frame it and say, we can, there, this, there is an abundance here. We're not, we're not limiting rights um, for anyone. We are simply trying to make sure that everyone has the same fundamental human rights and has the same opportunities. And, and that, you know, that's all we are saying. And so that's been a really interesting thing that from a human rights-based perspective, we've really had to focus on away from this sense of scarcity and that more rights for some equals less for others and really try to um, more overtly focus on this, on this sense of abundance and actually and why this is a good thing um, to then expand rights for all and that included coming from some feminists who were concerned that expansion of trans rights would would have some impact on women's rights we had to really overtly say no 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 this is really not the case but we had to be the the fact that we have had to be so explicit um, is quite concerning and I think What's also interesting is that, you know, at the same time that we're saying we want an expansion of rights, we can also be checking our privilege. And those are two very different things. And so I think it also comes into play with white feminists as well, where um, whether uh, is, is about saying we can expand rights for all, but we also have to recognize that to really achieve gender equality, to really be practicing the intersectional feminism that we want to practice, that that does mean checking our privilege and understanding and unpacking what that looks like. And so I think that we have had to do that a little bit around some of the work we are doing on gender identity when people were saying, you know, there's this, you know, when there was that fear, uh, that, that scarcity kind of complex was really about saying we want rights for all, but that means that we still can check our privilege in some spaces and we need to be lifting up trans voices and that means that we're going to be, you know, setting up the meetings for people with sen you know for with that grassroots activists with senators but like we're only going there to be like hey this is a human rights issue. This isn't just a trans rights issue. This isn't something that just the queer community cares about. This is a human rights issue. This is something we should all care about. And now we're going to shut up and everyone else is going to speak and this is the only reason why we're in the room. I mean, it was, you know, kind of that thing about understanding what role that we could helpfully, responsibly play. And I think that's increasingly a role in many spaces that we're trying to occupy is looking at, you know, what is the space? How do we occupy it? What feels right? What doesn't feel right? 
but also it's okay when we're called out and I think that it's about we need to understand and own the call out culture and know that that our world you know we can't be that delicate and our worlds can't end that we can handle it and we should and it's actually a pretty fantastic thing to be called out because it means someone's taking the time and the care to do that and we have a responsibility to acknowledge it and to apologize and to look at how we can do better and see it not as something that's going to shatter our worlds but actually something that's going to help us grow and evolve as feminists and I think that we all want to grow and evolve as feminists and this is a you know part of that process Patience. You remember our last Prime Minister, the one before Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, whose name we do not mention. Um, He talked about the barbaric tip line. I don't know if you remember that. He was encouraging Canadians to call in if they see someone when there are barbaric values, and he talked about old Canadian, old stock Canadians. I mean, essentially, it seemed like he was. You know, dividing the country and saying there's white people and then there's the rest of us and they're to be uh, looked at with suspicion mm-hmm. and a lot of times that suspicion falls on women of color and we are seen as people who come from cultures that are more barbaric and less civilized and thus we need um, to be saved from ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? We still hear that discourse strangely in this day and age coming from some of our well, mm-hmm. our leaders mm-hmm. and how do we deal with that? Um, You know, when that came out, um, I almost have to, like, breathe. (laughs) Um, I remember trying to go and read what they defined as these barbaric acts, and I thought, this is all that my clients go through in domestic violence, and a lot of my clients are not newcomers. They're just your average Canadian women, a lot of them are Indigenous, um, and yet there is no provision to support them. Like, we don't have enough services for them. We don't necessarily take their concerns seriously. Um, and I thought, like, you're so worried about all these people, and yet this defines you. Like, this is what you do. Um, and so I think when, I th- when, I, when that came out, what I kept thinking about was you are creating this distraction about how you define everybody else and then you don't have to deal with the stuff that's going on within your own home, you know? But also, aside from that, is you're creating this sort of hierarchy around, and I think with every time they, this whole notion of who's old stock Canadian, who's actually Canadian, new Canadians, it's always centered around values and our Canadian values and what makes us a country, you know? And, and, and that's what we're protecting. Um, but these values, you know, they only somehow only seem to be values that can only apply to certain groups of people, and then we say the other groups of people don't carry these values, um, and yet, you know, it's, like, very determined by, like, this Eurocentric um, kind of Anglo-Saxon or a Francophone, you know, notion, and so everybody else sort of falls out of that, and so it continues to create this otherness, and um, it continues to keep people out, and so that even if you may have lived here for as long as you can and you don't necessarily... Um, fall under whatever the barbaric standards are, you will always be kept as the outside, as the other, and you never will be Canadian. Um, And so that, I think, was one thing that really was hard for me because it was just like, if a a migrant person faces some of the issues that, um, let's say, you know, for just for the purposes of, like, the shelter, for example, if I take a client to seek services and she's Indigenous, there's all these prejudices that come along with what happened with her and um, 
you know, that she already has to face. If a white woman, I take her, for example, for services, the notion is that she's almost like a, you know, like, you know, we're so, we're much more quicker at least to at least acknowledge what happened to her in some ways. But, um, you know, because of course, like a good man wouldn't do that. Now, if a woman of color was brought in, well, of course, all you guys act like that. You know, there's all these assumptions that are, and it's almost like she brought it upon herself. And then her agency is also taken out because we don't necessarily ask her what she wants. And because, of course, we're here to save you, you know, like, um, so it, it becomes like, at the end of the day, there is no respect to who that person is, to those cultures, to um, the diversity of it, and to what they can bring in to add to our Canadianness, you know. And so then this notion of multiculturalism becomes almost non-standing. But I think also what I thought when he said that um, was that we, um, in as much as Canada was this country of, you know, it was, you know, created by settler communities, Indigenous people opened the doors, you know, and there was this benevolence um, to accept newcomers um, out of sharing. And then when we, they did open the doors and when the first settlers came in, even within the settler groups, there were divisions and there were groups that had hierarchy more than others. And we know, like, even in Saskatchewan, you know, we talk about, you, you hear stories about the Germans versus the Ukrainians and this and that. And we always forget that we all needed each other at some point to survive, you know? Um, and so you act like as if you just somehow came and you stood on your own two feet and you made it and that nobody else helped you. You know, and so I think with that, it just makes me realize, it makes me think that, you know, of course we all come with a whole lot of diversity, and of course we'll have issues that we come from our home countries or even from here. We all have those. But if we come from that place of saying your issues are worse than mine because your value system is different and you somehow biologically, inherently are worse than I am, we can never come to a place where we can solve the issues effectively. If domestic violence for one person is seen as maybe in that true sense, domestic violence. But for someone else, it's this barbaric, you come from this backward, wayward act of being. There is no way of even dealing with those issues, even if we try to, because you're the, you know, we're giving totally different correlations to those. Um, and so that was, I think, I remember thinking, and I remember also thinking when he brought that up, because it came with a whole other set of issues, was that I'm never going to be Canadian enough. I came here and I thought I could just be me because we lived in so many countries and there was a lot of pretending or trying to fit in and, and of course people treated me different right away because of my accent so I said okay I'm going to change my accent so I sound Canadian and then you do all these things to fit in and then I realized you know to be Canadian is simply something that was granted to me so if tomorrow the law they decided they want to revoke that and they can it's gone you know. And so it became, for me, was less about Canadianism, but more about just being a citizen of the world. And I know no one can give me a passport for that. And I know that doesn't actually mean anything um, when you think about legalities and all that. But I feel like at least that, no one can take that from me. You know, because Canadianism, the values, Canadian values, what is that? Taking away without respecting the land, is that Canadian values? Or is it multiculturalism until we don't care about it anymore, until you're Muslim, until you're certain skin color? Um, is it about caring about gender equality until you're indigenous? You know, it seems like our values are so, they only, they're so short, you know? 
And again and again, comments like that bring up like what really people are thinking, you know. Um, so that 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 hit home for me when when he said that. So, and actually, I just wanted to mention something really. It's not nothing to do with this, but I remember I went to Montreal for the summer last year, and I was um, in this museum, and they were talking about the first settlers that came through, and um, back in like the 1800s, and it was like Yiddish and Arabs, and so it was like, you know, these Muslim communities and these Jewish communities, and they were there for like hundreds of years in Quebec, and I was thinking when people say, go back where you came from, when you look at someone wearing a hijab, and that person might be like, I've been here 200 years, when did you show up? Like, <laughs> your, your, your family just came, like, in the 50s or 60s, you know, like, it's so, it's like, who gets to claim the space and say, we belong here? versus who gets to always be the outsider, regardless of how long they've been there, you know? So I thought that was interesting. But. Speaking of belonging here, <laughs> you were talking about pre, well, contact. It was unfortunate that when contact happened for a lot of people all over the world, it was during the Victorian era when the British were at their height of patriarchy um, and found cultures that were matriarchal and were appalled by that and deeply suspicious of that and broke those cultures down so they would mimic the patriarchal cultures of Anglo society mm -hmm. back in the Victorian day and it has damaged the incredible amounts of damage to so many indigenous cultures. Can you talk about how you tease those things apart and try to remove some of that? Mm -hmm. <coughs> So as a Cree woman, um, well, I'm half Cree and I'm half Soto. So my musham, my grandfather was Soto, and my kukum was uh, Nehio, Cree. And originally, pre-contact, we had um, uh, matriarchal societies. So we followed, you know, through the female, for, through our grandmothers, our mothers' uh, bloodlines. Um, but after contact, we took on patriarchal values. And so when my kuka married my musham, we got settled on a Soto reserve. And, uh, which is funny because her reserve is right next door. Pipot. You guys all know of Pipot, Muscapeding, right off of number six there in the valley. And so, and it's funny because our house is right on the line of Pipot and Muscapeding. <laughs> Um, but I do follow the Cree way of life. And, uh, you know, that was interrupted by uh, Western settlers, you know. And, you know, there seems to be this talk here about being Canadian or wanting to be accepted as a Canadian. And that's far, far from it for me. Like, please do not ever call me a Canadian or an Aboriginal because I take that as an insult. And um, I know a lot of Indigenous people do. Um, I'm not Canadian. I do not belong to this country. We are sovereign nations. We sign treaties. Um, so I think there's some education that still needs to be done. We sign treaties to share these lands and to remain um, as sovereign nations. And within those sovereign nations, we have um, our matriarchs. You know, and that's a huge role to fulfill because a lot of times our matriarchs are knowledge carriers. And 
we pass down a lot of tr- tradition, culture, um, teachings, ways, stories to our grandchildren and, uh, and our children, you know. And I say knowledge carriers because recently, um, one of my nokums, Betty McKenna, we were talking about, you know, where did the word elder come from? Like we never, we never called our old people elders. Um, and then knowledge keeper. Well, knowledge keeper sounds like you're being stingy of the knowledge and you're keeping it to yourself. And so she said knowledge carrier because you're carrying the knowledge and you're spreading it out like seeds um, for, you know, for it to grow. So we really liked that concept of knowledge carrier. And so now I've begun to think, and she said, that's what I see you as. You know, she said, I see you as a knowledge carrier. And that really made me feel good inside because that's exactly what I strive to be. Then when people ask, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, you know, I say, well, first of all, I want to grow up, you know, and not die when I'm 60. Um, And I want to be a knowledge carrier. You know, I want to be someone that you could go to um, for knowledge and I will share that freely, you know. Um, Our teachings and our ways are sacred, but they are not secret. And um, and I think there there needs to be, um, you know, that needs to be told. Um, But if we were to follow, you know, the matriarchal ways um, of the Cree society, uh, today I would be registered on Pipot Nation, which is a Cree nation, but I'm registered on Muscopeding. But again, that's just the government's way of, you know, back in the day of confining us to spaces, to reserves. So I don't say that I'm from any nation. I just say that I'm from the Treaty 4 territory. Because I am. If you think about it, all my relatives are spread out everywhere. Um, you know, and a lot of people here are my are my cousins or my third cousins, fourth cousins, and we take them like brothers and sisters, no matter what. That's why we always say um, one of our greatest laws is wakotawan, uh, and that means uh, kinship. So we are related to more than just human beings, but also to the animals, the trees, um, everything, everything around us that's alive. And so that's really important to us. And as a matriarch, that's a piece of knowledge, you know. And I just pass that on to you all. And I think that's one of my roles is to continue to do that. And to like, there's this big tree in my front yard, and my little Nosam, uh, she just loves it ever since she was a baby. And uh, I introduced her to the tree like as if it was a human being. And now she, um, when she gets home from daycare or whatever, um, well, there's snow banks now, but in the summer she runs to it and she touches it and she says, Hi, hello tree. Oh, tree, I missed you. And, and, uh, I tell her, Oh, the tree missed you too, baby. Look, it was waiting for you all day. <laughs> and so she's, she's formed a relationship with that tree. And and those are the kind of relationships I want my grandchildren to build with everything around them. And if you think about it, that's a beautiful, beautiful way of looking and living your life. You know, I see those trees out there. You know, there's that path by um, Luther College here when I was an undergrad. And those stressful days, 
And I was always I was told by our old people, you know, that you could talk to them because they're so old and they're so wise and they'll do their best to help you. And I remember I'd walk through all those trees that are that are along that path and I'd be so stressed out and I would just pray to them and talk to them. And now sometimes when I walk through there I I remember and and I kind of laugh and I look at them and I say, you know, you remember when I used to tell you <laughs> how hard it was to, you know, finish this exam? Like I talk to them like they're human beings because that's how I see them as spiritual beings. And and I think of how much they know about me, you know, and and that's a beautiful way to live life. And um, so in our matriarchal ways. You know, we're bringing those back. We're bringing back those roles. We're reclaiming that space. You know, every ceremony that I put on for our communities, I always invite an indigenous uh, woman with a pipe carrier. When before it used to be always just the men who would gather and smoke pipe. But when you come to something that I put together, you'll know, you'll see that I'll see, I'll always have a woman pipe carrier sitting right up there um, alongside the men, you know, because we are reclaiming our spaces. And I've been told that by an uh, an elder that has passed on. And he said, you know, you, you're such a strong woman. He said, you're, you're a true matriarch. He said, do you know what that means? And I said, yes, I do. He goes, you're a matriarch, he said, and you're going to carry on that matriarch that matriarchal value system and you're going to bring it back to life and I remember just feeling like I was going to cry inside and I was like thank you I said I really really would like to do that in any way that I can possible so today that's what I try to do you know I try to bring back women women's roles within our communities within our ceremonies within our culture and it's a whole different world when you when you step inside my culture it's a whole different world. It's a whole different fight than what we're fighting out here. You know, there's other fights that I have to fight within my own people. And, um, you know, you could be ostracized. So you got to be careful because you don't want things to come down on your children or your grandchildren. So you always got to be careful of the things that you do and you got to keep that in your mind. Um, just quickly, I want to say... Um, I was told by one of our old people that the younger we begin to take our little babies to ceremony, the more that they will believe in things, you know. And I think um, you were speaking about it a bit and, and, and saying that, you know, the younger that we begin to teach our children these values or that trees are humans and have spirits and they can listen to you, they're going to grow up believing that. They're going to know that as truth. And I think that's an important aspect. And I wanted to bring my Nosum today with me. Um, but she didn't have her nap yet, so she probably would have been flipping out here. <laughs> or her, her great-grandmother's back there, so <laughs> she would have been with her chap on. Um, but uh, again, the younger, they, the younger you begin to teach them, the more they're going to believe these things as truth so we need to start right when these little babies are born and uh, you know put that knowledge put that knowledge within their reach my kids are back there and that's why I sent you to mosque so early because they feel like they were tortured right? 
So there you go. You heard it from another mom. <laughs> Jet, you talked um, about you know some of the suffering and the, you know difficulty being trans and what you had to go through personally, and then then to be an activist. And it's hard to give so much of yourself while you're still dealing with the healing process. Can you talk about that juxtaposition when you are asked all the time to be on panels like this and to talk about the community when you're, and at the same time when you're also having to care for yourself and making sure that you leave time for your, your own healing? I think this is a topic that every person involved in advocacy or a fight of any kind can relate to, that uh, there's two of you. <laughs> Um, there's the one of you that needs that inner nurturing and, and, and desire to have just a peaceful, normal life. And then there's the other person that has the cause, <laughs> the person that sees the injustice or whatever it is that motivates you to, to go out there and do things. And the two can be at odds and it can be very difficult. Um, you want to be home with your kids. You want to be, you know, just having a career. You want, you know, um, here you are, um, in, in my case, um, I found out that I was uh, transgender in 2011 in the fall. I did research over the winter. I still didn't tell my wife, because um, how do you tell your wife that? <laughs> um, I needed to know what it was all about. I needed to understand it at a, at a really deep level and internalize that and, and make it my reality and know what my options were and what the future would hold before I came out and brought those that I loved into that. Because when you're involved in a struggle, the people that are closest to you are in that struggle too. Um, they have to cover for you when you have to be away or they have to, you know, um, they see the, the stress that you're under and all those kinds of things. It, it affects everybody. Um, you can't just be an advocate alone. And um, I told my wife in the spring and that same month I was standing in front of the legislative building with a microphone. Um, so I really didn't have time to deal with um, my own transition yet. I hadn't started it yet. I hadn't dealt with all the emotional ramifications of now discovering what had been wrong my whole life, um, what it really was, that um, I wasn't crazy, that um, all of a sudden psychiatrists are saying, no, you're normal. This is just what you're dealing with after being told for 38 years that I was crazy. Um, dealing with the... Um, the anger, dealing with the mourning aspect of it, uh, dealing with the potential of losing close, intimate relationships, friends, family, career-wise, when you do come out. Um, I mean, I come out as a lesbian 21 years before that and been through all that once. To do it again, um, I knew that it wasn't going to be easy, and um, it takes a huge toll on you to rethink your whole life. Um, to look at every experience you've ever had and reevaluate that through a different lens um, and then look at your current situation and your relationships and your future through a different lens. Um, for me, I thought that I was just one person that was dealing with something that I couldn't identify with. Then I realized that it was a real thing and there was a few of us and I thought, oh, I'm part of a small community of people dealing with this. Then when I realized, oh my God, <laughs> there is millions of us on this planet dealing with the same kind of or similar types of issues and I saw how many people in my own immediate friends, family, community um, were dealing with these things and then I 
put two and two together and said, these are only the people that have talked to me about this, or the people that I know about this. How many other people are silently dealing with these kinds of things? And it just became so overwhelming that I couldn't stay quiet. I couldn't just go back into my safe little world. Now, this is something that was really hard for me. Um, being married, I'm drawing my wife into a potentially dangerous situation. Being a transgender person, there have been transgender people murdered in Saskatchewan, in Regina. People aren't aware of those things. Um, they aren't reported or they aren't documented in the same way. Um, the, the violence is of all different proportions and um, subtleties. <laughs> and so, like, my next-door neighbors don't know. So every time I went on the news or, you know, met... Um, did an interview or whatever like that. I was risking my own safety, you know. Um, I was risking the safety of my my, my wife, um, her professional career. Um, I'm risking, you know, my in-laws, everybody that I know is could be potentially drawn into this. Um, I knew just coming out as a lesbian that my nieces and nephews were bullied at school because of it and stuff. Um, so what was going to happen now? Because this is such a, a stigmatized kind of situation. Um, but I couldn't stay quiet because I didn't want anybody else to go through what I'd been through. I didn't want them to feel the same pain that I'd been through, and I knew, like you say, as we've said here today, the younger that you intervene, the better chance that kids have to grow up, to be who they really are, to live healthy lives, to contribute to society, and not have to fix adults who have been broken as children or experienced traumas, uh, or disconnect from their identities and, and the communities and things like that, and their families. Um, so it was, a, it was a no-brainer. I had to do it. Somebody had come along before me and risked their life, and they had saved my life by being out there in the public for me to find them. So I had to give back by doing the same. And it just was an automatic thing for me, and I know not everybody can do that, and I don't judge the people that can't do that because I understand we're all different. We're all in very different situations. I was very lucky. I have the most incredible support system in the world, and I know pe trans people that have lost everyone and everything in their lives. So if you can, you do speak up. You do do things. Um, but I burnt out because you're 24 hours a day. You're doing peer counseling. You're meeting with politicians. You're doing interviews. You're doing presentations educationally. Um, you're dealing with your own inner stuff. And um, it sort of gets pushed off to the side. And I see so many advocates burn out in whatever it is, whether it's gender or anything, um, because you're so passionate about it. It, it comes from your heart, and you, and you know how important it is, and, and you know how many people that are potentially affected by it. That's what motivates you. How do you step back and take care of yourself at the same time? I've been trying since 2014 <laughs> to step back, and it doesn't work because there's often nobody else out there doing the work. Um, I'm so grateful for all the new people that have come that are doing the work, and um, every one of them I know is faced with incredible odds, and I feel guilty for not still being active in the fight with them on the front lines. But there is also a time where you can become so burnt out where you're ineffective or you're actually causing problems because um, you're, you're not thinking right, you're not organized, you're not um, able to control your emotions, all kinds of things. And you have to admit that maybe I need to step back for a while and get healthy. What does that mean? 
for transgender people, everybody's situation is different. But for me, I basically kept my feelings locked up for 38 years. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I have, I'm letting feelings come to the surface. I'm letting myself feel anger or sadness or whatever it is. I don't know how to manage those things, so I've got to learn those skills, how to manage them. I now have to learn how to do that at the same time that I'm learning a whole new social code, being a man. So interacting in the everyday world, I now have to learn the rules, and um, I have the pressures of losing the intimate female relationships that I had, too, with friends and stuff, because no matter how hard you try, you can't always keep those things because things have changed, dynamics have changed. and um, I'm trying right now to take courses on um, communication and public speaking and uh, enrolled in a, <laughs> in a course on how to be a stand-up comedian because I have so much anxiety. Um, people in the trans community, there's so many of us have huge anxiety and stuff. And I want to try to become uh, more confident at, at being an advocate so that I can be that healthy person that, that can step back into that role and make a difference. Um, I don't know, I'm rambling here, but <laughs> it, it's a very difficult balance for anybody, you know, to, to maintain your, your personal health and, and expend all your energy helping other people too. And I'm just grateful for everybody else that joins the fight and everybody that every ally that shoulders the burden too. And I know um, how difficult that is as an ally. And there is always um, always room in my world for every ally. <laughs> and I appreciate every person here who, if it isn't their personal cause and doesn't have a personal stake in it, still steps forward and tries to do something and tries to make it better. And um, I'm grateful for Amnesty because that is the greatest thing that they do, is that they take on causes all over the world that they haven't experienced themselves. Um, and I think that's, that's just amazing. Thank you. Speaking of allies, Amber, can you talk to me? I was really curious about the research that you do in social and gender dimensions, and I don't know what a climate hazard is <laughs> your description. Can you talk to me about that? Sure, of course. Um, so my research is primarily focused on how people in communities experience, well, climate hazards, which can be uh, really any form of disaster, drought, flooding, wildfire. My current research focuses primarily on f communities experiencing flooding and communities experiencing wildfire. And I take, in, I take what's called an intersectional lens, which means looking at how people experience disasters differently depending on where they've been positioned socially by systems like gender, race, class, sexuality. And so how people people who have fewer resources, for example, because of social exclusion, because of all of those different, well, the isms, sexism, racism, homophobia, these kinds of things will cause people to be affected differently when disaster occurs. And so my work is situated within the broader area of gender and climate change. So looking at how with climate change, with the damage that humans have caused to the, to the environment, those kinds of disasters will increase and are increasing. And so with that, it's important, I think, to understand how 
people experience those disasters differently and not everyone is going to. We often talk when there's a disaster as if it's just the whole community and everyone experiences it the same. And it's not because power, because privilege, because these things shape the resources that people have in the aftermath and and where they can go and where they can't go. And so I'm very interested in that. And, And so I've been doing a lot of work over the last few years with Um, rural communities and some First Nations in Saskatchewan as well to look at how those kinds of factors will influence, um, unfortunately, the disasters we know are are coming in the future. Thank you. I was worried we weren't going to be able to make it till 5 o'clock. And I have to uh, I have to thank our wonderful panel. They were just amazing. They shared so much very personal and intimate um, experiences with us. Can we have a round of applause for our 